Welcome to the Sports Pro Podcast. Hi everyone and welcome once again to the Sports Pro Podcast. My name is Owen Connolly. I'm the editor at large at Sports Pro. Hope you're all doing very well. Uh, we are going to be hearing today from Paul Barber, the chief executive of Premier League Soccer Club, Brighton and Hove Albion. Bit to talk about there. Uh, Paul is pretty well travelled in the game. He's had spells with the FA, uh, with Tottenham Hotspur and with the Vancouver Whitecaps of MLS. Uh, at Brighton, he's been on a different kind of journey, one which took them back to the top flight in 2017 after a three-decade absence. And staying there since has been a challenge in itself, but that is nothing, it's fair to say, to what has been thrown at everyone in the sport this year. Uh, getting a measure of it all is Sports Pro Digital Editor Tom Bassam, uh, who actually cut his journalistic teeth at the Brighton Argus way back when, so he knows whereof he speaks in this case. Uh, Paul spoke to Tom a few days ago about how clubs have reacted to the pandemic uh, and what lies ahead for the business of soccer the mood music around Project Big Picture and the Premier League's responsibility to teams in the lower tiers, the reasoning behind the short-lived pay-per-view experiment here in the UK uh, and the lessons learned from it, and the continued importance of matchday income to Premier League sides. I should note that this was recorded very recently, but before news broke of a limited return of fans to English stadiums, once the latest lockdown restrictions are eased, about a week from now as I'm speaking. You might well have seen on the site last week that Paul went on to tell Tom he was optimistic about crowds coming back in the first few weeks of 2021, Um, but events are developing a pace, so we've left some of that conversation to one side for this podcast. Um, I'll also note that this interview is part of an extensive feature that Tom is prepping for the next issue of Sports Pro magazine. That is issue 112, uh, which we'll be seeing sometime early in the new year. Some fascinating interviews lined up for that one. So look out for the magazine and also look out for some more of those conversations to be spun off digitally uh, on either side. Very quick reminder as well, while I've got you, that the Sports Pro OTT Summit is happening on the 2nd and 3rd of December. We are a matter of days away from our biggest digital broadcasting event of the year. All fully virtual, of course, but uh, very much worth your time. We're going to be going into a little bit more detail about that on the next edition of the pod. Uh, But if you want to find out more right now, you can head to sportsbro-ott.com and register if you've not done so already. But anyway, we'll leave that there for now, and we will take you to our conversation between Tom Bassam and Paul Barber. You're listening to the Sports Pro Podcast. Yeah, actually, uh, considering you have also been at Spurs, who are a big big six club, and uh, now at Brighton, um, do you sort of understand the rationale behind some of the project big picture? Uh, I guess the, it was described as a power grab, but do you see it that way? And can you understand why the bigger clubs are trying to, posi- trying to position football in such a way, or take football forward in such a way? Um, I think that there's no doubt that the, the big six clubs um, and, the, and the value and the size of their brands add huge dimension to, to the Premier League's value around the world. There's no doubt about that. Um, but I think having sort of been at a big six club and, and recognised that and seen it in action, but having spent the last eight years and four of them in the Premier League at a, at a smaller club, I can also now see the value that the smaller clubs bring to the league as well. Um, and I think, you know, one of the one of the sort of fascinating things about the Premier League is the, the, the jeopardy that exists for clubs like us. You know, we go into every season um, with a, an immediate and first priority of staying in the league. But at the same time, a club like ours, which is ambitious, we've got, you know, we want to become a top 10 club in, in the Premier League. That means we've got to improve season on season as well. And the way you improve season on season is not just by beating the teams around you. It's by every so often pulling off one of those results as we did last season where we beat Arsenal twice or we beat Spurs at home or for the previous two seasons before last, we beat Manchester United at home. 
you know, the, the, the ability for the smaller clubs to beat the bigger clubs is one of the significant value points in the Premier League it's, as well. So it's not just all about the big six clubs. It is about what the other 14 bring to the league. Uh, and also the, um, the excitement that is generated when one of those results actually happens. And I think if you, if you make the Premier League into a procession, because the big six clubs have so much power, so much additional wealth, and therefore so much, uh, there's such a gap between the top six and the rest, then those sort of games and that sort of excitement will become rarer and rarer and rarer. And that will actually diminish the value of the Premier League over time. So, you know, I can see it both ways. I've also seen it from the other side of the world where I've not been in the league. I've been watching from afar. And again, as, a, as a, an interested observer, you know, working in a different league in MLS, but tuning into the Premier League, again, as, a, as a, an interested observer, I've also looked forward to those games where it was the big against the smaller clubs and the excitement of watching those games and really not knowing which way they were going to go. You know, if you looked at the team sheets, yes, Manchester United should beat Brighton at the Amex, but actually for two successive seasons, they didn't. And, you know, that was an, you know, to be part of that was amazing. To have watched that from afar, if I was still in Vancouver, would have been even more amazing. Um, so, you know, I, I think we, we underestimate the value of the other 14 clubs in the Premier League at our peril, to be honest. Yeah, as a as a Brighton fan, the wins over uh, Manchester United were amazing. Uh, <laughs> yeah, they were. And yeah. If, if you remember, you know, all the years as a Brighton fan that we, that, that, that Brighton fans were striving, first of all, to save the club, then to get the club to its own stadium, then to get into the Premier League. Then once you're in the Premier League, you, you do want to see progress. And, and that's why hanging on every year by our fingertips isn't a vision that Tony and I want to have you know clearly that's our immediate priority but if you aim much higher than that then you can push for higher standards because to reach the top 10 you've got to be much much better than just hanging on in the Premier League you've got to actually compete with some of the biggest clubs and beat them. We hear a lot about kind of um, Premier League reform and talks of Super Leagues and stuff like that but does reform actually have to redress the balance between the big six and the other 14 rather than trying to placate the, the big six clubs? There's, def there's definitely an argument that, um, that says that we, we certainly shouldn't be conceding points that make it even harder for us to compete. Um, you know, the, the bigger clubs tend to have bigger stadiums, bigger sponsorship deals, uh, bigger hospitality capacities, so therefore a bit of bigger merchandise sales, so therefore their ability to generate revenue over and above us is already significant. And then, of course, more often than not, they're going to be competing in European competitions as well. And therefore, the ability to generate even more revenue over and above us is there as well. And, and you know, I don't think anyone begrudges uh, them that or any team that breaks into a European spot in any given season, because that's the beauty of the meritocracy in action. You know, you, you want to be rewarded for success. You want to be rewarded for investment in your club. You want to be rewarded for having a good season. So I don't think anyone has a problem with you know, the bigger clubs competing in Champions League or Europa League or one of the other 14 breaking into that in any given season or for a consistent period. Um, it means we have to work even harder to compete. Um, but the meritocracy is what it is. And it's one, of the, it's one of the great things about European football particularly. And certainly, again, going back to MLS days, I used to look across uh, and see the, sort of the relegation battles and the way they were being played out. And, and, and sort of musing that it was disappointing in MLS that, you know, once you were unable to win the divisional title or unable to reach the playoffs, your season was done. There was nothing really left in it for the fans or the players or the staff in terms of excitement. You could actually finish bottom in MLS in, in your division and be rewarded the following year with a better draft pick. And to me, that, you know, that wasn't, that wasn't football as I knew it and football as I enjoy it. Um, and I think, again, we, we underestimate the value of the, um, of the bottom end of the table and what that brings to any given Premier League season um, at our peril, because I think it's a, it's a significant value driver when it comes to selling TV rights around the world, not just in the UK. Yeah, uh, TV rights something I'd like to touch on a little bit later, but um, 
with the with the, I mean, I think it was recently reported the the Premier League have been consulting with um, a U.S. firm about reforms to the, to the structure of the league, and part of the project big picture stuff was about voting uh, voting rights and all of that kind of stuff. How do you like? Does does the Premier League need a drastic overhaul, or is it kind of fine as is, and actually we're overblowing the problem? Well, we 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 believe that the the, the one club one vote. Um, constitution has been the bedrock of the Premier League's success over the last 28 years. It, it's maintained um, uh, a, a degree of, of, of sensibility over key decisions. It, it, it's ensured a balance. Um, it's what clubs like ours have, 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 have battled for over many, many years to progress through the leagues to get to the Premier League. And once we're in the Premier League, we want to try and stay there. And to have an equal say, an equal 5% say in how the league is, is managed and structured and, 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 and you know, developed is really important to us. And if you look at someone like Tony Bloom that's invested £250-300 million in, in a football club in order to reach the highest level of domestic competition that we can, then it would seem to be very disingenuous to take his equal right to vote on any given issue away um, and that's something that we would certainly um, oppose in any situation um, similarly I think from our point of view um, we, we feel that it, it makes sense to have the big decisions debated by all 20 clubs with an equal right to determine how that you know the outcome of those 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 debates you know comes and from our point of view you know that as I say is something that we've really worked hard for we've worked hard for the right to be in the Premier League we work even harder for the right to stay in the Premier League and an equal vote to determine how it's, how it's run, how it's structured, how the key decisions are made is, I think, you know, a reasonable expectation. In a worst case scenario and Brighton, and Brighton do go down, become a member of the EFL again. Um, much has been made sort of, of the, the Premier League bailout for, for that recently. Um, how do you view the Premier League's relationship with the lower league? Does that, is that something that needs readdressing? Does, does the Premier League have a responsibility to fund those clubs? Well, I always say that we, we haven't ever forgotten where we came from. I mean, if you look at our history, and you'll know this better than anyone, 119 years, and only eight of them have been spent at the top level. So of all the clubs in the Premier League at the moment, we've probably got as much, if not more, experience of, of playing lower-level football than, than any other club. We know how hard it is. We know how difficult it is to generate revenues in, in League One and League Two. Um, and we also know how competitive the championship is. So during this recent period where every club in the pyramid has been suffering financially, when you don't have fans in the stadium, it doesn't matter whether you're in the Premier League or the EFL, it hurts financially. And, you know, we, we've been losing revenues of, of over seven figures per home match without fans. So that's a significant amount of money. Plus, we've had to cope with refunds. Plus, we've had to cope with rebates to TV companies. Plus, we've had to, to, to manage the interest of sponsors. So the financial cost of, of COVID has been very, very painful for a club of our size, just as it has for every club in the Premier League. That said, we, we, we said right from the start of the, the pandemic that we wanted, if it was possible to do so, to help clubs at a lower level. And our position on that hasn't changed. We absolutely support some, um, some kind of financial support for League One and League Two. And we voted in favour of, of the... Uh, bailout that's still on the table we were far more um, reluctant to just um, basically write a blank check for clubs in the championship for two reasons one um, some of the clubs are owned there by uh, people that are richer than our owner um, and secondly those clubs are seeking to replace us in the Premier League so it, it wouldn't make much sense to anyone at any level in any business to weaken your own business to strengthen somebody else's with that business then looking to replace you. It doesn't make a lot of sense. That said, we have always been open-minded to the idea of some kind of loan facility to championship clubs. We don't want to see any club go out of business due to COVID. Um, we don't think that we should be underwriting or um, in any way uh, supporting losses that would have been incurred anyway. Um, but obviously, COVID-related losses have put us all in a, a lot more jeopardy and a lot more difficulty than we could ever have imagined. And we've been open-minded all the way along to some kind of financial support for championship clubs by way of a loan um, and some kind of more 
um, uh, uh, significant support for League One and League Two clubs to help them through this particular period. But again, you know, we also have to look after our own interests. We have to look after the jobs that we have at the club. We have to pay our own bills. We have to do all of that while not receiving any support from government. So from that point of view, you know, it, it sounds harsh and it sounds, you know, difficult, but we do have to think of ourselves first. And if we can help others, we absolutely certainly will. Um, but on the basis that I've described, um, it isn't a blank check. It isn't an open-ended um, support package. It's a package designed to provide help to those that most need it soonest and those that perhaps don't need it quite so much in a different way as quickly as we can once we've paid our own bills. Is there an argument for kind of um, a restructure of the entire way that the championship is funded? I mean, a lot of clubs spend with the idea that they're going to get promoted um, and when they don't, they, they're left relying on championship incomes, which can't support the levels of investment that, that their owners are putting in. Is there some way that we can, like, there's some way to redress that balance? Well, financial fair play was put in place to, to do just that. And, and we were, again, a, a club that supported financial fair play. We stayed living within our means during the period we were in the championship. We got promoted having hit the financial fair play targets. Um, so it can be done. Um, clearly, it needs a careful business plan. It needs a very um, financially strong and willing owner to support the losses that you inevitably incur, even under FFP. And it also means thinking about what might happen if you don't hit the target of reaching the Premier League. So, you know, coming back to the plan, we, we've always had, you know, a, a twin track plan at Brighton. We've had a plan during the championship years of what would happen if we get promoted, what would happen if we don't. And once we've been in the Premier League, what happens if we stay in the Premier League and what happens if we don't? And we constantly look at those numbers to make sure that we live as far as we possibly can within our means and over a period of time reduce our reliance on Tony Bloom to support the club financially. And that's a you know, that's not a that's not an easy balancing act to pull off. And you know, I don't envy any of the clubs in the championship now even those that have just been relegated with parachute payments, because this is probably the worst year that any club could have been relegated. And that's why we were all so keen to make sure the Premier League season finished, but it finished on as similar terms as it started as, as were possible. So neutral venues, for example, you know, would not have been a similar term to the basis on which we started the league, which is why we fought so hard against it. But, you know, going forward, does there need to be more reform? Well, that's what the strategic review that Richard Masters and Boston Consulting Group are leading for the Premier League. And in, invariably, that will involve, um, or inevitably, sorry, that will involve the EFL and, and the FA as well. And I've got no doubt that the, the gap between uh, Premier League income and income in the EFL, particularly the Championship, will be debated. I haven't got an answer to that right now. It's a complex puzzle um, that needs to be solved. And we all know that falling out of the Premier League is, is potentially catastrophic for any club, particularly in an era like this, where we, we've got so much financial uncertainty. But at the same time, um, you know, there is a responsibility on all clubs to manage their own finances and their own budgets according to, you know, what they, what they can afford. And, you know, we did it. And, you know, that, that is a responsibility that we had to take. And I think all other clubs, you know, need to take that same kind of responsibility. Yeah, I think that's a fair argument. Um, sort of looking ahead then slightly, we've, we've touched on COVID a little bit, but how long do you think it's going to take for clubs to recover? Um, or, and what does that recovery look like? Especially, so taking, taking Brighton as an example. Well, first, first of all, I think, you know, if, if I take Brighton, I can only really speak for Brighton, and I think mm. that's important that, that I don't speak for other clubs, because every every club during this crisis is in, is in a unique position. You know, we... We've got a, a capacity here of just under 32,000. We operate pretty much 100% capacity for every home game. And every single time that we open these doors without fans coming through, we're losing seven figures plus worth of revenue and then everything else on top of it in terms of rebates. So from a, from a financial point of view, this situation isn't sustainable for a very long time. And that's why we've been putting a lot of pressure on government to allow us to bring fans back to the stadium when it's safe to do so. Because if they can do that, 
And even if we can bring 25 or 30% of our fans back, it will enable us to continue to pay our own way, to avoid redundancies, to start the process of recovery at our level, which in turn gives us more room to manoeuvre to support clubs further down the pyramid. And for those clubs, if, if they can start to bring fans back, then their reliance on us to bail them out of trouble starts to reduce. It enables them to pay their own bills. And in our respective economies, we start to see more of a multiplier effect again, rather than at the moment what we've got, which is a really significant reducer effect. Because if we start making redundancies, uh, people will stop spending in our community. That will affect other jobs in our community. That will lead to more redundancies. And so we then move into a, a very significant recession at a local as well as a national level. So what we're saying to government is, look, in our case, and again, I can only speak for Brighton, we haven't used furlough. We haven't taken any government grants. We haven't asked for any government loans. All we're asking for is the ability to run our own businesses as we would in normal circumstances, albeit on a reduced scale to keep people safe so that we can continue to avoid furlough. We can continue to avoid asking for bailouts from government or loans or grants or whatever facilities might be available to other industries. And we're prepared to do that all the while we're continuing to support the community. You know, we've had a, an NHS testing centre at the Amex for months and months and months. We didn't charge the NHS or the local authority for that. We used a lot of our own staff to help manage that process. We didn't charge for the, the time of our staff. We've continued to support people in the community with free meals. We've continued to support them in any way that we can. But we can only do that if we've got an ability and an opportunity to run our own business, uh, even on a reduced scale. And so when this latest lockdown is over, we want government to actually allow us to bring fans back into the stadium, just as they were allowing the Royal Albert Hall, the Royal Opera House, the O2, and all those other indoor venues to bring audiences back. And, you know, we don't begrudge those, those venues, their audiences at all. We're delighted for them, absolutely delighted for them. We think it's fantastic that they can restart their own businesses. All we're asking government for is the right to do the same. You got, I mean, you guys held a successful trial over the, the summer against Chelsea and showed that it was possible. Um, do you think in order to, I mean, I don't know if you've been following what's happened in America at all, but um, the Golden State Warriors have sort of revealed recently that they were planning to invest 30 million. I mean, Brighton probably don't have the capability to do so. You might be able to tell me otherwise. But uh, in rapid testing and various different kind of um, verification in order to bring back more fans than just the 25 percent is that something that you guys are looking at considering going forward yeah i mean there's a whole there's a whole um uh, team of people that, that are outside the premier league that are looking at um, a group called stig that are looking at, at how they can safely bring audiences back to sporting and entertainment venues whether that's through rapid testing whether that's through um any other mitigation that, that we might be asked to put in place um, and we're very open-minded to investing in order to bring fans back. I mean, the, the pilot event that we that we staged wasn't without significant investment. You know, we we brought in thermal imaging cameras. Um, we deployed a lot of extra signage around the stadium. Um, we trained staff to be able to manage um, the situation, a COVID situation, by ensuring that they knew what distancing meant when face coverings were required, when they weren't required. Um, we, we invested in um, Perspex screens on our concession areas so people could order food and drink safely. You know, we, we've already invested in order to bring fans back safely. And if the requirement um, for them to come back safely goes up and the standard goes higher, then clearly that's something we're going to have to look at because we can't sustain a business of this size and of this type without live audiences that's what we're about and i think sometimes the the notion that premier league clubs exist purely on their tv revenues and that uh, match day revenue is no longer important to clubs in the premier league is it, just a myth and you know we sustain a, a football club of a of a of a medium size i would say now um but we we do so on the basis that we combine those revenue streams and we manage them accordingly we don't just say well We've got TV revenue from the Premier League. That's all that matters now. It doesn't matter whether we fill the Amex, whether we sell things in our shop, whether we sell all of our hospitality packages, whether we don't do any non-match day events. All those things now are irrelevant because we're in the Premier League. I mean, that is just an absolute myth. 
And for a, for a football club of our size, all of those revenue streams are important in order for us not just to um, cover our costs, but to actually mitigate Tony Bloom's losses. And you know, if we were sitting here in profit just from TV revenues, um, you know, we would be sustaining ourselves through this pandemic much more comfortably than we are. But the reality is, even pre-pandemic, we were relying on Tony to support us financially every year by covering losses that we were incurring just to compete in the Premier League. So losing a, a significant number of our revenue streams and, and also having to rebate um, is a very, very big hit. And, you know, as I say, I've said it for the third time, it's a myth to think that Premier League clubs uh, of any size, let alone our size, rely solely on TV revenue. Help us spread the word about the Sports Pro podcast. Subscribe, like and share our content on social. Join the conversation on Twitter with the hashtag SportsProPod. And if you're enjoying our work, why not leave us a rating and a nice review on your podcast platform of choice. And if you want to get in touch, you can send us an email, podcast at sportspromedia.com. The Sports Pro Podcast, we're listening to. On TV revenue, um, I mean, we've, we've, the Premier League have now scrapped the, the pay-per-view stuff. Um, I mean, it, it sort of, from my perspective, I thought it was interesting. It brought in, what was it, like five million for the clubs to split between, uh, split between themselves after costs were taken out. Was there any kind of lessons from that for clubs or the league generally? Like, was there sort of, okay, maybe this was the wrong price point or, th or the, that's not how we should do it, but there, this is something that we could look at in the future again? Well, I think, first of all, we, it's important to understand why we went down the route we went down. So mm. we sell 220 out of 380 Premier League games per season. That, that is what we sell in our normal packages to Sky, to BT and, and to Amazon. Below that, we have a highlights deal with the BBC for Match of the Day. And then we have live radio rights for national broadcasters and local broadcasters across the country. And then wrapping around all of that, we have a huge number of international uh, TV rights deals around the world. So when you, when you look at that entire package, it, when you come then to change it in some way, mid-season, as was the case last year, and ha as has been the case in the early part of this season, albeit that we had warning that it was likely to happen, then the ramifications of those changes are very serious. So, for example, if you suddenly move from um, five live matches per weekend of 10 matches, so 50% of the matches being on live in the UK to 100%, what does that then do to the value of those uh, rights holders like the BBC that are relying on the match of the day audience to justify what they've paid the Premier League for the highlights package. If everyone can see every match live, there's going to be a smaller audience for the highlights package. If everyone can see every match live on TV, there's going to be a smaller audience for the radio uh, packages that have been sold. So the ramifications just in the UK are significant with that kind of decision. And then in order to have every match live in the UK, you've then got to move around fixture times and dates, which then impacts on the overseas broadcasters. So if you're, if you're a broadcaster in Asia that is expecting, for example, a game kicking off at midday on a Sunday, for example, because it's eight o'clock in Beijing or eight o'clock in Hong Kong, and suddenly that game's Monday night at 5.30, which is 1.30 in the morning on a Tuesday in Hong Kong or Beijing, the value of what you've purchased has obviously gone down because your audience has gone down significantly. So these decisions are not easy decisions for the Premier League to have to make. And therefore, when we um, were in a, an emergency situation trying to support the government at the end of last season, we agreed that all of those games should be made available. We were in a lockdown. We wanted to lift the, the public's morale, as the government asked us to do. And therefore, all those games were made, made available free of charge to the broadcasters as well as to the, to the public. This year, you know, we, we felt that it was necessary to try and generate some kind of return on the games that were not ordinarily broadcast live. And the option that we had was either to go down the pay-per-view route or simply to leave those games with a black screen. We wanted fans to be able to see the games. The only way we had uh, to do that was to, to go through the pay-per-view route. So we had a binary choice. We were either voting for pay-per-view so fans could see games 
or we were voting for the screens to say blank and fans couldn't see games. And our view, uh, certainly for 19 clubs, was that it was better for fans to be able to see the games than not see the games. What we never had any control over as clubs was the pricing of those games. And I think with hindsight, this is a long answer to, to your very short question, but with hindsight, the pricing was clearly wrong. Um, but at the time, it, 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 it was a binary choice that we were voting for. We weren't voting for a price point. We were voting for the right for fans to see matches. And I think, I still think, that was the right choice. I'd rather, as a football fan, have the choice to see my team play for a fee than not have the choice to see my team play at all. And, you know, I think there were a couple of points that we, 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 we also got wrong above the price, the communication, explaining that, for example, again, I can only speak for Brighton in this situation, that we were going to refund our season ticket holders. We promised that all along, but this kind of decision-making accelerated the mechanism for, for how we had to do that. And we wanted to put people in a position where, first of all, they weren't paying for something they weren't receiving, i.e. coming to the stadium. And secondly, they weren't in a position where they felt they had to pay for something twice. I've paid for my season ticket, but I can't see the game. And now I've got to pay per view to see the game that I've already paid for. We wanted to eliminate that. So refunding people for their season ticket losses was really important. But then giving them the choice as to whether they wanted to see that game or not was also important. And if they didn't, and they didn't want to pay, then at least they had the money in their account from their season ticket that they couldn't use. And they could at least then listen live on the radio for free or watch matches of their highlights for free. There was a choice. If we hadn't voted for pay-per-view, they would never have had that choice. They might have had their money back, but they still wouldn't have been able to see the game. And we felt that wasn't a good move. So did we learn anything? Yeah, I think we learned the price point was too high. We learned that providing fans with the choice was important. Communication with them on what was happening and why it was happening was very important. And we didn't do that very well as a collective, not just as individual clubs or the Premier League. As a collective, we didn't do that very well. But, you know, the one thing I've said all the way through this pandemic is there is no script for what we're doing here. You know, this is a, a unique, unprecedented situation where decisions are having to be made in much faster time than we would normally expect to make decisions with no script to guide us as to what is right and what is wrong. And I think during the pandemic, we've got more things, as a football industry, we've got more things right than wrong, but we've definitely got some things wrong. And we have to hold our hands up when we get things wrong, and we have to try and put them right as quickly as we can. With my um, like B2B head on, when I saw the sort of £15 pay-per-view price, I thought, okay, that's fine. Like That's probably half the price of a ticket. Um, and for a, if you were thinking about it as an away fan, well, I mean, like, you can get 2,000 away fans at the Amex? Um, uh, two to 3,000, yeah. Yeah. Um, so in normal times, that's 2,000 fans that can see a game live. If that game, like, if that game wasn't on TV, that's 2,000 fans from one team that can see a game live. Is there an argument that says that actually, like, the next round of, um, like, the next TV tender, that there's an argument for putting in pay-per-view packages that for, for, for fans to buy if they want to watch a game that's not on TV? Um, I think inevitably it's going to be considered uh, as part of the, the round. But again, every time, going back to my earlier explanation, every time you tweak some part of the existing broadcast strategy structure, it's going to have an impact somewhere. So yes, you might be able to influence and increase the number of away fans that could see their team play away from home if the game's not ordinarily selected for live TV. But that could then have an impact on the local radio audience that have already paid a fee to broadcast that game live on the radio. So you might gain there, but lose there. And the, the, the net effect of that is something that, again, the Premier League broadcast team working with the clubs will have to, would have to work out as to whether the net benefit is, is, is there. And, you know, similarly, for, uh, for the broadcasters, they would have to work out themselves whether, you know, the, the investment in, in all of the um, necessary um, people and equipment that goes into showing a game live is also going to generate a return. Because the interesting thing, I think, is that as we've all become accustomed to the fantastic coverage that Sky and BT and BBC provide, multi-cameras, lots of different angles, great commentary, excellent co-commentary, 
brilliant punditry, pre-match build-up, half-time analysis, post-match analysis, interviews, all of the things that go around what we would both consider to be a normal live broadcast. When you don't get that, then the, the product doesn't feel the same. And I use the word product in this sense as the broadcast product doesn't feel the same. The match is still the same. It's still 95 minutes of football split into two halves. That's broadly speaking the same. But as football fans, we've become used to everything that goes around it. And, you know, I speak to fans all the time. Some absolutely detest everything that goes around it. And all they're interested in is the 95 minutes of football. Other people think the the game and the broadcast is significantly diminished if all those things that go around it aren't there. So you, you do have two very distinct groups of people. And there's probably a third group in the middle that kind of take it or leave it, depending on who's the commentator, who's the pundit, who are the analysts, what the game is, what time of day it is, et cetera, et cetera. But broadly speaking, you know, we, we have very distinct groups of football fans. If I take my father-in-law, he has no time for the punditry, turns the commentary down, just wants to watch the game. You know, for me, I want the whole immersive experience. And, you know, I, I, I was isolating during the West Brom game here at the Amex, unfortunately. And so I, I paid per view and I, I, I bought the product um, that was on offer. And I was disappointed that it wasn't the way it was going to be in my head. Um, I thought it was going to be a full production with all the things I'd become used to. And because I had that perception, I was disappointed with, with, with what I got. I was delighted about to see the game, but I was disappointed with what I got you know, around it. And, you know, that may have been sort of slightly uh, prejudiced by the fact we didn't play well in the second half and, and therefore the result didn't go as well as I'd hoped. Um, but equally, I, I was trying to think of myself as a, as, a, as a normal Brighton fan and I can't go to the stadium. I've got my season ticket money back. That's great. I'm now going to invest 14.95 to watch the game on pay-per-view. And my expectation was, was greater than, than what I... What, than what I received. So from that point of view, yeah, going back to your earlier question, I think we learned a lot and have learned a lot, both from last season during the lockdown and finishing the season, and this season during the early part where we weren't in lockdown and lastly when we are in lockdown, as to what works with football fans, what doesn't work, how we should communicate, what order we should get our decision-making in, but as I said earlier, we're not working to a perfect script here. We're working to something that we are genuinely, as best we can, and with the best of intentions, making it up to some extent as we go along. Other things that you've made up as you've gone along, um, what kind of advancements have you had to make in terms of your social media strategy or your digital engagement and that kind of stuff during the pandemic that you'll probably keep after we go back to a normal sort? Oh, I mean... A huge amount of things. I mean, first of all, going back to the to the test event, you know, we we had to we had to sort of move to a digital ticketing platform, you know, straight away. You know, it wasn't going to be acceptable to government uh, for us to use any kind of paper tickets. So we we shifted uh, onto a digital platform where people had to download the ticket onto their phone. We were already, as you as you know, as a Brighton fan, moving to contactless payments. So thankfully, the technology is already in place on the concourses, and, and it's enabled us to accelerate that. But we've also shifted people's mindset to: if you can't put your ticket on here, then if you want a paper ticket, you're going to have to download it at home. Uh, we're not going to provide you with a paper ticket. So that was a, a shift. And on the day, on the on the test event day. You know, we had very, very few issues um, with A, the technology, which was great, but most importantly, people's mindset. There was an immediate acceptance that I've used my season ticket card for years and years and years, but now I know I've got to download it to my phone. No problem. I'll, I'll do that straight away. I want to be at the game. I'll do whatever you ask me to do that's reasonable. Great. That, that worked. But also during the pandemic, we've had to shift the fan engagement in a different way. So rather than doing our regular fans forums up and down the, the county and right up into London, we've been doing them over Zoom. And that's actually, you know, obviously it's not as personal as we'd like, as, as this conversation is, is, is proving. But, but, but what, what's been really good about it is that normally we might get 100, 150 people to those events. We've had up to 13, 1400 people for the fans forums on, on Zoom. So for me as a chief executive, when, when we're at the height of a, a, a pressure point, pay-per-view being a good example, I can actually reach 1,400 people live 
and they can ask whatever they want to ask. There's no rehearsal. Um, it's me on the spot. And, and whatever answer I give not only goes to those 1,400 people, it's on YouTube. Others can look at it after, uh, not live, but they can see and hear and everything that's been said. The people that were on the, on the Zoom call were tweeting. So they're tweeting the answers. We're tweeting the answers. So we're using social media in a, in a different way. And what we were able to do within a very short space of time is really try and answer all of those very emotional questions and reactions that people had to the notion of pay-per-view and how did it affect refunds and when was I going to get my refund and how is it going to work and why have you voted for pay-per-view? Why did you decide to charge 14.95? Well, we didn't. It wasn't our choice. Oh, it wasn't your choice. So it's not the club ripping us off. <laughs> it's no one ripping you off. We, you know, we're part of a collective and that was the price set by our partners in this situation. So, you know, I think during the pandemic, we, we, we moved very quickly to a, a situation where Zoom calls is normal. We did a weekly press conference during the pandemic, Graham Potter and I, again, on Zoom and maintained that press conference, even though we weren't playing football. And that went down really well with the media, both national and local, because we were answering the questions that lots of people had, but, you know, other clubs had taken a different strategy. They weren't putting people up for regular press conferences. We felt it was necessary to do that because we had a lot of people already emailing the club, asking the questions that the journalists were asking. A lot easier to do one Zoom call. We answer whatever questions come our way. Those answers get disseminated to a wide audience and that reaches our fans as well as other football fans. And of course, some people will like what we say because they like the answer. Some people won't like what we say because they don't like the answer. Some people won't like the answer because we're speaking on behalf of Brighton and not any other club or their club. But that's again, that's fine. We felt it was necessary during the pandemic to communicate. So I think open communication was important. And the final thing was the, the connection with the community and, and you know, reaching out to the community on a regular basis from our supportive services team, reaching people that were vulnerable, reaching people that were isolated, reaching people that didn't have family and friends to look after them during the uh, lockdown. That was a, a hugely valuable thing for a football club to do. And I think any doubt that Brighton fans had, again, speaking just for us, that in reaching the Premier League, the club had somehow become disconnected with the community. I think those fears uh, or concerns, if they existed at all, were completely quashed. Uh, we made over 5,000 outbound calls and picked up food for vulnerable people, picked up prescriptions for people that were unwell. Um, and that were, that were, they were our staff doing that out, out of their normal jobs to support the fans and to support the wider community. For me, in a crisis, in a pandemic, that's a great example of a football club putting itself at the heart of the community and doing what it should do to help them reach out. Since 2008, Sports Pro magazine has set the standard for the business of sport in print, and it keeps on getting better. Every quarter, our outstanding editorial team gets under the skin of the industry, talking to the most important leaders and the most influential thinkers around to take you to the heart of what's really happening in sport and what's coming next. We look at the big ideas, the pivotal themes and the critical numbers. With powerful storytelling, provocative opinion and insightful commentary, as well as guides to the deals, the developments, the destinations and the movers and the shakers, it's your essential industry companion. Head to the shop at sportspromedia.com to subscribe now. SportsPro, connecting and inspiring the business world of sport. Speaking kind of more broadly, I mean, you're very experienced in the football industry. Do you see, do you feel like the, what's kind of been seen as a boom time in football, do you feel like that's over now with the pandemic? That's going to cause a big kind of recession within the industry generally? I think we all felt that um, by the end of the Project Restart last season, that there would be some kind of correction in the, in the transfer market. We'd see an immediate sort of reduction in, 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 um, numbers of transfers, maybe in salaries, maybe in agents fees. It happened to some extent. I think the volume was down, but the fees and the, and the wages were, were maintained because the best players will always attract the highest bids and, and the best players will always be able to command the highest wages. So I, I think that correction didn't necessarily follow in the way that maybe some people had predicted. Um, clearly at the moment, the longer the uh, situation goes on where fans can't come in the stadium and, and budgets are being severely impacted by that for all clubs, that will have some kind of effect, I believe, in January and possibly next summer as well. 
Um, but if we can get fans back, if we can maintain the levels of our current broadcast contract, both domestically and internationally, if we can start to see improvement in the confidence in the economy generally, we should start to resell hospitality once fans are back, resell merchandise. The football business model will sustain. It may just have to accept that there's going to be a, a slower return to normal than perhaps we would all like or, or expect. And I suspect there's going to be some changes as well that we can't even yet foresee. As I said, you know, one of the things that I wish we had was some kind of script to tell us what was about to happen. And then maybe we could be better prepared. And, you know, the reality is we, we, we're like any other part of the entertainment industry. We rely on our fans' goodwill and their desire to one come up watch live sport, just as someone in the theatre industry wants people to watch live, um, live, live theatre or music, live music. Um, we need them to be able to feel safe when they, they come here. We need them to be able to feel safe getting to and from here. And then we need to make sure that the balance still exists between those that want to come and watch live and can watch live and those that can't or don't want to and can watch therefore on live TV at home or listen on the radio at home. So all of the component parts of the live sports industry will still be there post pandemic. We've just got to make sure that we manage through the pandemic to ensure that as many of us as possible are still in business. And, you know, that loops us all the way back to the start of the conversation about how can we help the lower levels? Should we help the lower levels? How do we help the lower levels? And what help do we need in order to facilitate that? And the answer to that, yes, we do want to help the lower levels. Yes, we can. Yes, we will. But we also need some help ourselves. And the best help we can get is from government to allow us to bring fans back when it's safe to do so. Final question, I promise. And um, um, one thing, I, I don't know if you mentioned it there or maybe you thought you covered it, but sponsorship, how has that been impacted by what's going on with, um, yeah, with the pandemic? And have you had to change how you approach doing that in terms of like their digital engagement or, yeah, or uh, new I mean, activations, that kind of thing? First of all, I would say, you know, from our point of view, again, American Express and Nike have been fantastic through the pandemic. You know, they, they've continued to support us. They've understood that we've got challenges in meeting some of their rights. Um, they've accepted that we've had to deliver some of their rights in a different way. So, for example, you know, I was due to speak at a, a significant conference for American Express last month. I would have ordinarily done that live on a stage, you know, a venue. I did it via Zoom. Um, and, you know, there were still three or 400 people in the audience on, on Zoom. They would have been the attendees at the conference if it had been in normal times. And, you know, American Express totally accepted that for, for us to be able, or me to be able to meet the obligation to speak at that event, I had to do it like this. I had to do it remotely. And they were very forgiving and understanding of that. And, of course, the event went ahead and that was great as well. Equally, when it comes to player appearances and you know, signing merchandise. You know, at the moment, we're not signing merchandise and sending it out because we don't want to put the recipient of that merchandise at any kind of risk, you know, with, with the virus perhaps being on the, on the sign shirt or the ball or whatever. The remote chance of that is just that. It's very remote, but we can't take the risk. We don't want to take the risk. So there will be some rights that we've had to suspend, some that we have to deliver online, some that we won't be able to deliver until, you know, for example, a group visit from American Express staff to the training ground. We physically can't do that. The Premier League protocols won't allow us to do that. Um, you know, the Premier League um, matches when American Express would normally have a significant presence, both in their own suite, but also in the, the boardroom here in the director's box. We can't deliver that at the moment. So, again, they're being very forgiving of that. And, and we will make it up to them at some point in the future. Um, the other impact, of course, is on local sponsors. You know, in, in many cases, local sponsors uh, are not looking for major TV exposure through the LED system. They're looking for exposure in the stadium to the to the live audience. And, you know, we've not been able to deliver that to them. So, of course, we've been working with them to try and find ways of replacing the value that they're losing, either by extending their deals into the future without further charges or delivering rights to them that they didn't have originally in their contracts that make up the value they're losing by not having fans in the stadium. So our commercial team have had to be creative. They've had to be fleet of foot. They've had to be clever. 
they've had to be persuasive, they've had to be, um, you know, frankly, at times, um, selling the whole idea of, of, of being involved in football all over again, because it's a different kind of football that we're involved in at the moment. So, again, we've been really lucky that all of our local partners have stayed with us. They've been entirely reasonable um, and we've been reasonable in return. So, again, it's about working together through the pandemic. And, you know, so far, you know, we haven't lost any commercial partners due to the pandemic, either walking away from us or, you know, God forbid, them losing their own businesses because of the pandemic. You know, we've been very, very fortunate. And, you know, I'm, I'm grateful for that because it means that once this uh, terrible period is over um, you know we can start those relationships again but I think on an even sounder footing because we've helped each other through a very difficult time. And would an example of that be the sleeve sponsorship with Snickers is that an extension of an existing deal? It was and, and and again you know credit to Russell Wood our head of commercial partnerships. You still play cricket with Russell Wood. You did did you? Yeah. Isn't it good? Um, he was back then, yeah. Uh, I haven't seen him play in many years, but if you, tell him, if you do see him, tell him uh, Tom Basson says hi. He's just over there. Um, uh, he's, he's more of a golfer these days, uh, or at least that's, that's what he claims. But, oh, we'll have, to play, we'll have to play golf then. Yeah. Um, but no, Russell's done a really good job, um, not only maintaining the partners I've just been talking about, but also achieving extensions and um, not just extensions to the term of the deal, but extensions to the rights. So Snickers being a great example of where they were a very sort of small, low-level partner three years ago, but have slowly expanded their their interest with us to include women's football and now the sleeve partner for the men's team as well. And that that's not only been down to the guys at Snickers that are having great faith in us and, and confidence in us and have got something from their partnership with us, but also down to Russell's persuasiveness to convince them that maybe now's not a bad time to invest. You know. This could be a time where relationships are cemented for a very long time to come. And, you know, Snickers have bought into that and they've been fantastic partners. Great. Um, I think that is all of my questions. Thanks so much, Paul. Um, really appreciate your time. And, uh, yeah, hopefully we can uh, get back in the stadium soon and watch them all brighten then. That would be nice. Sports Pro Podcast is published by Sports Pro Media. The producer is Ed Dixon.